0: welcome to gaining the technology leadership edge a podcast for tech executives we provide strategies and tactics to help executives succeed and further their career goals with interviews from industry experts leaders and innovators this show will surely get you on the edge of your seat with thought-provoking advice on how to stay ahead of the competition Welcome to Gaining the Technology Leadership Edge, a podcast that explores the latest trends, strategies, and insights in the technology leadership world. From emerging technologies to digital transformation and beyond, we will discuss the most important topics and ideas shaping the industry today. Join us to learn all of the juicy secrets of tech leaders, their biggest successes and failures, on our quest for gaining that all-important technology edge. Are you ready? Let's get started. So today, my guest is David Fraden. David was classically trained as an HP product manager and was then recruited by Apple to bring the first hard disk drive on a PC to market and later became the Apple business unit manager at the same level as Steve Jobs. He is the author of Building Insanely Great Products, Organizing and Managing Insanely Great Products, and the Wiley published Successful Product Design and Management all available right now on Amazon. He has trained companies such as Cisco on these topics worldwide. His mission is to help products succeed. Welcome to the show, David. Glad to be with you. Thanks. So, so tell me about, a little bit about your mission to help products succeed. It's an interesting statement. Well, I cover that in detail
1: in my books and in my courses and classes that I deliver like at Cisco. And it's uh, epitomized in the mnemonic of SPICE of my company, uh, SPICE Catalyst. Uh, The S stands for you must have a product market strategy. Uh, The P stands for process, a repeatable process, so that you uh, get better and better with each new product. Uh, I and SPICE stands for have the right information available to make decisions. The C stands for understanding the customer, what the customer wants to do. And what things that your product can do to help your customer do what they want to do better, faster, uh, or with higher quality, which is called innovation. And lastly, uh, is the, your employees uh, to make sure that they have the competencies or the skill sets for product success. And I've identified about 130 skill sets that uh, an organization needs to have in order for their product or for their service to succeed.
0: So, is this applicable to any type of product?
1: Any product and any service in any organization for profit, nonprofit, government, uh, uh, charitable, whatever.
0: I think there's some people who aren't going to believe us, but I actually think that it makes sense because, like, I'm a big process person. I think that um, the way you solve major problems in your business is by taking a look at what the heck you're doing and figure out maybe you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, maybe you're not doing things you should be doing. Um, I think it's interesting how many um, um, skill sets that you've identified for employees in order for this to um, go well. So why don't you know, I think it'd be interesting if we walked through that acronym a little bit, the strategy, process, information, customer, and employees. Um, And so let's talk a little bit about like, what kind of um, strategies do you recommend for people who are attempting to put out a product to market?
1: Well, product market strategy or uh, product market plan, the word strategy and plan mean the same thing uh, and that are interchangeable. Uh, and I should mention in 2014, a study was done and found that uh, the world spent about $1.6 trillion on new product development and roughly 40% of them fail. And that goes to the to the reasons why these five keys to product success are not being followed uh, very well. Uh, so in the area of product market strategy, there are um, understanding your customer, what it is that they want to do, what's the problem that you're going to try to solve. Is there enough people uh, or organizations that have that same problem? Then there's a uh, tangible market that you can try to tap into uh, with that information in hand, you can then uh, figure out the persona of your target customers, uh, do your market research and your competitive research, and write your uh, uh, product positioning statement, which is used then throughout your uh, marketing, which you do later. Uh, then figure out uh, the uh, uh, how you're going to distribute it, the distri- distribution channels your pricing strategy, and uh, your support and service uh, uh, plans. That is then you hand that over to engineering or development, and now they know who they're building their product for and what it is that the product needs to do uh, for the customer.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, th- that would make market research a lot easier. I think a lot of times people go into market research blindly so to speak like they they misunderstand what market research is and they think that they're they're supposed to go out there and like find out everything about the potential for the product without actually knowing anything about what they're intending to offer i see that a lot um then let's talk about the process so what what kind of process do you recommend for this
1: well they teach in the MBA school that uh Uh, If you can repeat the process over and over again and improve upon your product development process, then you will have a greater product success. Uh, One of my clients uh, uh, developed uh, five uh, Wi-Fi devices targeted at the education and government markets, and all five of them failed, and uh, they did not have a repeatable process, which I, I asked them about. Uh, As a result of that, the VP of product management said that uh, the lack of a process developed a culture of blame, so everyone would point fingers at everybody else as to why the product failed. So the repeatable process might be something along the lines of uh, going out and uh, observing uh, 40 prospective customers. Uh, let's say 10 a week. This is what Procter & Gamble does for all of their products. And by the end of the month, you now have observations of uh, 40 of your target customers. From that, you could then develop a uh, interview form, which would then lead into a questionnaire. So with interviews, you would go out, maybe interview about 100 prospective customers, And then you would get maybe about 1,200 prospective customers that you would send a survey to and reward them to respond to the survey. So the combination of observing, interviewing, and then surveying lets you build up what your potential target market size might be from the bottom up, as opposed to the way that we used to do it and the way a lot of companies do it is they'll go to a market research service and that service will say, okay, it's a $10 billion market. And they say, OK, I'm going to get 5% of that market uh, and then just build all of their return on investment and marketing uh, spend uh, assumptions uh, on a top down type of a uh, model. While the bottom up, as I described, uh, it gives them a much more accurate idea of what they could potentially uh, get a return
0: on. So then the next one is information, and I assume that they're taking the information that they've gathered from the previous two steps and doing something with it. So why don't you describe that?
1: Correct. And uh, when I, for example, when I worked at Hewlett Packard or when I was consulting on a project two years ago at Cisco, I would contact their market research department and ask them. Uh, in the case of uh, one of those companies, uh, they did not subscribe to any services uh, market research. It's all uh, hard products yet the group I was consulting with was responsible for their services. And I asked them if they can buy these add on market research uh, surveys. They already uh, subscribed to about 80 of them. And the market research department at the corporate level says, yeah, we'll put it in our budget and uh, next August uh, we'll get the budget approved and then maybe we'll probably buy it by next January. And this was like in um, uh, November of that year which meant it would be almost a a year and a quarter after I needed to finish my market research study, I would actually get the information I needed in order to make an intelligent decision. (laughs) So uh, that's why I say, especially these large companies, have some flexibility in the market research services that you subscribe to uh, so that your product managers and your uh, CFOs and your presidents can make informed decisions.
0: Yeah, that's important. I mean, um, too many I've had in like the last several years, we've launched five products in our business and two of them were miserable failures and they were the first two. And honestly, the approach that we used was just bad. And when you, and I think that's what people forget when they, when they launch a product, it's not necessarily that the market didn't want it. It's that you didn't approach it the correct way. And, you may be marketed to the wrong people which you know is the next one here is customer um but i mean if you market to the wrong customer i'll give you a perfect example we we had a we had a membership community that was called the um, the small business boot camp and couldn't understand at such a cheap rate with everything with all the information that was inside why we were having a hard time getting subscribers and it's as we started talking to the customers a lot of them referred to themselves as entrepreneurs, not small business owners. So you know, then then it became, well, all right, they don't they don't resonate. Um, we changed it, we, we actually closed it down and then reopened it. Basically the same exact concept with a few things changed as the entrepreneur's water cooler, and it took off. Um, <laughs> it's just having the right the right wording and aiming at the right person. So you know like your next letter here, is C for customer. Um, I assume this is a part of uh, identifying the ideal customer for the product?
1: No, it's understanding what your customer wants to do. Okay, so Uh, the innovation part. Yes, the innovation part. Uh, There's a professor at Harvard who wrote some books called Outcome-Based Innovation. Uh, And then a company up in San Francisco called uh, Synergy uh, did a book called Jobs to be Done. Uh, And uh, my proposal is that understanding Uh, the outcome and or understanding the job to be done, which is a little more granular than the outcome, uh, is not granular enough. And that what you really need to understand is what your customer wants to do. Why do they want to do it? Where do they want to do it? When do they want to do it? How do they want to do it? What's stopping them from getting it done now? Uh, How important is whatever it is they want to get done is uh, to them? And how satisfied are they with their current solution uh, so an example of that innovation over the decades is the uh, caveman uh, started uh, writing with charcoal on the cave wall and noticed that he couldn't take the cave wall to the next cave to show it to some of his friends so he took a, a piece of the wall you know maybe a piece of slate and he would write on that and then he got uh, aggravated by the fact that his hands got dirty from holding a piece of charcoal so uh, they wrapped it in wood and called it a pencil. Uh, and then they noticed that the pencil kept wearing down and they have to go get another pencil someplace. So they started taking uh, duck uh, feathers and, or quills and um, somehow made an ink and they, they had a fountain pen. Uh, and then someone said, that's kind of messy, especially when you spill the ink all over your desk. Uh, so the ballpoint pen was invented. And then along came uh, the printing press and Gutenberg, and eventually the mechanical typewriter, the electric typewriter, uh, dedicated word processing, and then a word processing program that ran on your personal computer. Uh, And that was after dedicated word processing ran on your mainframe or, or mini computer. So it's the same act of doing something that is getting the written word or now drawings Uh, portable so you can show it to somebody else Uh, and through the millenniums uh, that innovation has occurred so it's understanding who what when why how what's standing in your way how important it is and how satisfied are you with the current solution with that in mind then you can build up uh, what's called your customer persona who are they where do they live where do they get their information from how do they describe their problem? And your example of uh, the water cooler versus the small business, um, you probably would have found out if you'd gone out and uh, did the interviews uh, or the surveys uh, because they didn't didn't call it those things uh, uh, then.
0: That's interesting because what you just described pretty much aligns with my own definition of innovation, which is just uh, providing things to people that they didn't know they needed. I mean... You know, you, you used the example of the of the caveman. You know, and he probably was like, "Oh, cool! I can write on the wall here." And then he said, oh, "I want to show somebody. Whoa, whoa, how do I do that?" You know, like I can't, like you said, I can't carry the whole the whole cave with me. Uh, so then he came up with the next step and the next step, and then you know, it evolved over time. Um, nobody realized that they were going to need a pen with ink uh, encapsulated in a tube. You know, no one no one would have ever thought of that. That's really interesting. So then you mentioned employees. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm
1: sorry. Uh, yeah, the uh, uh, aspect of that that innovation innovation is doing something faster or at better quality or at lower cost, and inherent to in that is you can't go and ask people what it is that they want or what it is that they need. Uh, Steve Jobs famously used to say, "You can't ask people what they need uh, or what they want." And the reason for that is if they knew what they needed or wanted, then they have not only figured out that they have a problem, but they have also figured out the solution. So for example, uh, there's a story that says Henry Ford uh, uh, could have gone out and asked people if they wanted an affordable car and people would have responded, no, I just want a faster horse. Uh, Or if he had just sat on on the stoop of a bar in Dearborn, Michigan, where Ford Motor Company was born, Uh, and I was uh, lived just north of there uh, and grew up in Detroit, Uh, he would have noticed people whipping their horse trying to get through town faster or pulling the uh, wagon that the the horse is pulling to move their goods uh, through town faster. Uh, Another example of that that uh, Dave Packard from Hewlett-Packard writes about in his book, uh, The HP Way, uh, is that his marketing people went out and asked people if they would like to have a color printer, and they responded, no. Uh, but then he changed the question, uh, do you want a, uh, a black and white printer that can also do color at no additional cost? And then the answer changed from no to yes. So you build some inherent bias into trying to ask your customer what they want or what they need. It's far better to ask them, what is it that they do, why they do it, when they do it, where they do it, and so forth. And from that, you can innovate and come up with a better solution.
0: Yeah, it's the typical survey problem of how you ask the question, you know, um, for years, I worked for a restaurant delivery service as their CTO, and our CEO got really into net promoter score. And um, it has its interesting points. But I always used to say, you know, you're going to get a different number depending on how you ask the question, you know, and you and and. One time, I actually, you know, he he required all of the department heads to have a monthly survey, and it was part of we we subscribed to a system called Management Action Planning, and so like they would teach you um, how to run your department, setting goals correct way, et cetera. It's pretty basic stuff, um, but they also had like a something they called the vital factors. So like when you go to the doctor and they check your pulse and your blood pressure. You know, check your weight. Those are kind of like the vital factors to see how are you doing? Are you being he- are you healthy or are you not healthy? And we had as our one of our vital factors, each department was our survey score. And so I kept telling him this, and he wouldn't believe me. So one time I actually split the survey and changed the question. <laughs> it was a one question survey. And I changed the question on one survey, I got like eighty nine percent positive and on the other survey, I got like forty five percent positive. and, it was essentially asking the same thing, just in a different way. So you it know, kind of proves that point. But So you mentioned employees as um, the last part of the SPICE acronym. So how do employees play into this?
1: Well, they need to have the skill sets to be able to uh, go out and observe what people are doing, uh, be able to write an interview uh, and avoid the questions like, uh, when did you stop beating your wife? Uh, to be able to write a survey and order and pick a sample that's representative of the personas that you're targeting, and each of the topics that I mentioned uh, earlier in the product market strategy, uh, in the process, uh, in the uh, uh, accessing uh, uh, information that you need about your customer or your and or your potential customer, uh, all of those skill sets or qual- uh, competencies. Uh, you need to make sure that your uh, your employees have been trained uh, professionally on how to do each of those things. Otherwise, they'll uh, flounder around, make mistakes, uh, similar to, you know, like you just described earlier, where the question that you ask uh, uh, the results of the answer that you get.
0: Yeah, that's, that's extremely true. I mean, it's, Look at what they do with political polls. They change up the way a couple of words, and it completely changes whether your answer is yes or no, or I agree or I disagree. It's just one of those things. What do you think are the top skill sets, like, say, the top three skill sets needed um, to help further product um, releases being successful?
1: Uh, to take yourself out of the picture and observe what it is that the customer is doing. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, I was in Singapore speaking at a product management conference and had to go to uh, India, in particular Bangalore, uh, to train some uh, uh, Cisco uh, product managers. And uh, so I had to decide, uh, so the job to be done was to go to India. Well, the things I needed to do is I needed to figure out how I'm going to get from the hotel to the airport. Am I going to take the uh, train? Am I going to be, or get a cab? Am I going to use Uber? Am I going to use a, a ride sharing service? And then I had to decide based upon what those costs and how long those took when I needed to leave. And then I get to the airport. Uh, I walked into the airport, needed to find the ticket counter. And uh, I, I didn't know where the ticket counter was. And if you've ever been to the Singapore airport, it's like going to a football stadium. Uh, I have no idea where to go. Uh, but my phone, my uh, smartphone knew uh, what airline I was flying with. It knew that because of its GPS capabilities, I was at the airport and a little arrow could have pointed, uh, popped up and said, hey, go over here. Uh, but it didn't. So I asked uh, uh, somebody and they put into the ticketing counter, which was halfway across the terminal. I got there they said, I'm sorry, we're not uh, uh, ticketing yet. Uh, come back in eight minutes. So, well, my phone could have told me or an app could have told me that it was silly for me to get to the airport too early because I can't check in. Because my objective was to get through security and go into the business class lounge and uh, have breakfast uh, instead of eating in the hotel uh, ahead of time. So then uh, the, t- the attendant at the counter says, uh, if you wanna want to go to India, you have to show me your ticket leaving India. And I'm going, where did that come from? <laughs> Nobody told me that. I said, well, I don't know when I'm leaving because uh, I'm going there to teach uh, uh, in addition to Cisco, but also through uh, Manipal uh, University. Uh, I was going to give lectures at Philips, so uh, uh, Qualcomm, and uh, half a dozen other companies. And my schedule has been firmed up over the next couple of weeks, so I don't know when I'm leaving. And she says, I'm sorry, you can't go to India unless you can prove you're going to leave India. And I said, trust me, I have absolutely no interest in staying in India. But they insisted to see a ticket. So I said, where can I get a ticket? And she said, well, go over there uh, and point in, uh, to Singapore Airlines uh, and buy a ticket leaving India. So I go over to the Singapore Airlines ticket counter and uh, they don't fly to India. Um, so I said, well, how do I get a ticket to India so I can leave it, uh, go to India? How do I get a ticket to leave India to be able to go to India? And they said, go to the travel agency, which is in Terminal 2. And I think I was in Terminal 3. And I, I said, I'm not going to walk a, half, you know, a couple miles just to get a ticket. So she said, well, you can buy it online. And I'll say, OK, fine. So I found a restaurant, went to the restaurant, and uh, sat down, ordered breakfast, and then proceeded to try to sign in. Uh, to the Wi-Fi at the uh, Singapore airport. I had bought a a universal SIM, but it wasn't working. Um, And in order to sign in to the Wi-Fi, you have to get a text message with your uh, one-use password. But I couldn't get a text message because the SIM doesn't work. And then they said, well, if you go to the uh, information counter, which is at the other side of the terminal where I had started earlier, I can get a piece of paper with the Wi-Fi on it. So I got the piece of paper, uh, came back uh, to my cold breakfast and uh, decided I was gonna uh, sign in on my iPad instead of my iPhone, only to find that the user interface for signing into Wi-Fi, on the iPad was different than the iPhone. So I had to climb up through the the learning curve all over again. Finally, I was able to uh, get online, was able to buy a ticket to get out of India so that I could go to India. Well, if uh, the airport infrastructure, uh, like on the Wi-Fi, along with the travel requirements of uh, whatever country you're flying to, along with the airline that you're working with, if they would all get together and realize that all of their customers are going through the same things of what they're trying to do, trying to get to the airport on time, trying to find the ticket counter, trying to check in and so forth, they would solve that overall problem Probably, with one travel app. Uh, and uh, so that's what I mean by understanding what it is that your customer wants to do at that granular level of uh, every little thing to accomplish, whatever the outcome is that they're trying to accomplish.
0: that's That's an interesting uh, that whole story it, it makes me chuckle because I especially like the part about trying to sign in on your iPad because <clears throat> so many people don't bother to even even look at the mobile version. Uh, of their site and you go and you're like where's the button that i click submit with and you know it's like way off the screen they've never bothered to have it move onto the screen and worse like when i was when i was a developer we made it a habit of like the default button was always you could just hit enter and it would and it would go a lot of places don't do that so there's no until you give focus to the button and doesn't do anything so if it's off the screen you can't give focus to it and you're and you're kind of stuck my wife does it all the time she'll be like in the airport and she'll say why can't i get in here and like well because they designed the screen really poorly that's why you can't get in there that's really interesting I, I also find it kind of intriguing that you worked for apple because like apple is kind of that company that um i mean now obviously google and microsoft have become similar um desired places to work um but what was it like working at apple like like how did you get in there? Um, what was it like on a, on a regular basis working there, et cetera?
1: Well, at the time, I uh, was recruited by Apple to come there was because I was a trained uh, product manager from Hewlett Packard. Uh, there were a lot of HP uh, engineers and product managers that had made that jump because product management, or as I prefer to call it, product success management uh, originated at Hewlett Packard built on the brand management concept that uh, Procter Gamble had pioneered back in uh, 1932. So one of the other nice things about Apple is that they have a set of values, which was uh, somewhat modeled after the HP way and the values uh, that Intel had at the time. And uh, I was surprised to learn years later that our vice president of HR at Apple Uh, she was married to uh, Bob Noyce, one of the two uh, co-founders of of Intel. That was VP of HR at Intel at the same time. She was VP of HR at Apple. And she felt very strongly that the company have a set of values. So they set up a values committee uh, in the late 1970s and they wrote up a set of values. Things like teamwork, uh, it's okay to fail. It's uh, uh, have empathy for your customer. Uh, demonstrate good management principles and follow good management, uh, build quality products, that type of thing.
0: You so, know, you you mentioned product success management. You emphasize that. And I actually 100% agree with you. It reminds me of the story of the Buffalo Bills and how they went to the Super Bowl four years in a row and lost four years in a row. And after the fourth time, the coach said, you know, I had the wrong goal. I told my players in the beginning we were going to go to the Super Bowl this season, and we did four times in a row. I probably should have told them we're going to win the Super Bowl. Maybe we would have won <laughs> one of those four times. And, and it's the same thing. If all you're going to do is manage the product, you know, you can manage a failed product. I mean, you want to you want to make sure it's successful. That's actually um, that's was actually a really interesting point that uh, you brought out there. Um, what else would you like to tell me? I mean, what 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 else do you specialize in?
1: Well, that's the primary thing is uh, my books and my courses uh, and my consulting in uh, product success management. And uh, if there's anything that I could do to help reduce the product failure rate, which I talked about earlier, uh, those resources would be better uh, available uh, to pay employees more and or to spend more money on uh, the the great uh, climate change uh, challenge that humanity has uh, around the world
0: interesting i think i think that um the way business has evolved um i'm i'm actually a little interested to see what ai is going to do for all of this because like we said like if if you're in like right now if you go say to walmart and you're looking for where what aisle is something on for the most part their their system is set up that you can look in their app and you can find what aisle it's on well, what the heck good does it do you if that it's on aisle A2 if you don't know where aisle A2 is, you know? Um, and so it'd be nice to like be able to click on that and then have it put a line in the map of here, follow this. And this is where you're, you know, this is how you're going to get there. Um, and I can see that coming in the in the very near future. Actually, I think um, with, with AI, I, I, I got really interested in AI years back when, uh, you know, I'm a chess player and they got that alpha zero, um, chess computer system that they, it taught itself how to play chess. Like they did not teach it the moves. It actually learned from playing over legal chess games. Um, and the current soon to be former world chess champion said he learned a lot from its play. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people need to pay attention to going forward is, you know, don't just throw AI at everything, but look at how it's helped how it because ha- I'm sure it's going to make some things more complicated and so you know you've got a kind of same process you you know you went through here you're going to have to make sure that people need it you know that's something that that they're going to use you're going to need to make sure that you have a process that you can repeat over and over I mean everything you said you can apply directly to that kind of situation you don't just want to stick it into your 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 old app and have it you know release it as a new app you want to make sure people are going to use that and it doesn't bog them down
1: I suspect one of the issues that uh, AI is gonna run up against is uh, similar to you know, asking people if they want a car, uh, when in reality, the problem they're trying to solve is to get from place to place uh, faster. Uh, it's, uh, sort of, it's not gonna be able to discover uh, what used to be called the unknown unknowns because it is monitoring and reading Uh, all of the published data out there. And if there's no published data out there, then therefore there's no uh, problem. Uh, So for example, if Henry Ford had the internet available and he was doing market research and he uh, searched on the keyword automobile to see how many other people were searching for automobile, he would have found that nobody was searching for automobiles because nobody thought that that thing existed. And as a result of that, there would be no market for automobiles and he would not have gone into the, the Model T business. So the AI stuff can't answer questions for you or do stuff for you that something hasn't done previously. And uh, it worries me, we've, we've seen the uh, weaponization of social media uh, used uh, by the Russians in 2016 election and uh, it was actually a, a paper given by a, ger- a russian general back in 2014 saying we have figured out how to weaponize social media such that uh key things like uh uh the QAnon uh, uh rumors uh, get posted and uh negative stories have 10 times as many clicks as positive stories And the companies supporting those clicks found that they can make more money by uh, having these negative rumors uh, surrounded. In fact, you can make a lot of money uh, if you call yourself uh, a company uh, that's like Fox News, but when you're really not uh, have any news, you just have uh, these negative clicks uh, so that your ratings go up and you can make more money off of your advertisers. So I
0: think- It's something I noticed on Huffington Post. They uh, used to be kind of neutral headlines, and now the headlines will be like you know, because um, they're very left leaning. It'll be like you know, right wing force messes up something. You know, and it's like a very negative um, headline to get people to click it and read through. You know,
1: well, just like the uh, uh, what's uh, David Pecker's company with the, uh, the, the, uh, the 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 supposed newspaper that's in at that the grocery store checkout lines. Yeah. Uh, Uh, the, uh, what's the, uh, paper in New York that Murdoch owns, uh, was the New York post. Post. Uh, They just found that if they write these, uh, types of headlines, uh, people are addicted to these kinds of negative stories and they, they buy those publications. And to some extent, uh, 20, 30, 40% of, uh, people believe it and, uh, and then they circulate, uh, them around with the uh jewish uh, space lasers for example
0: well like like that i've told this story on this show before but i have a friend who um worked for a media company and they wanted to kind of prove that social media is really a poor way to get the news out it's just a terrible way and so during the 2016 elections you know a lot of people were Um, you know, all in all up in arms because um, Donald Trump was the nominee for the Republican Party. And, you know, there were a lot of things that came out about him that were very, very negative. And so I can remember like people saying, oh, he's going to get he's going to get arrested for this. He's going to get arrested for that. And so he his company put together a little a little test and they released on social media an article that was titled something like, you know, um, Trump indicted on you know, blah, blah, blah charges. And then if you clicked through to the article, the article literally said, I'm glad you're here. You're actually reading the article. The, this article is here to teach you about the bias of, of headlines and how we can um, attract you to this article based off of the headline. But but what you read actually hasn't happened. And, and as to our, to our knowledge, best of our knowledge, it's not going to happen but yet people would reshare that and reshare that and reshare that and reshare that. And then argue that, no, I know he got indicted. He got indicted. I read it. Well, no, you read a headline that's at it, but you have no clue what's behind the headline unless you click it and read it. And I think it's interesting that, you know, so many, you're right. So many people believed it. Probably half the people believed what they saw there and Um, I guess in a way that's kind of the dangers of the uh, written word too, is, you know, you can spin it any way you want and put out a message that, you know, on the, you know, if you dig into it, it's probably not true, but on the surface, it appears true. So that's kind of interesting. Well, this has been a great conversation, but we're kind of running out of time. So why don't you tell people where they can find you and um, like how to reach you if they need assistance with um, successful product management and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, just go to my website, which is uh, spicecatalyst, one word, dot com, or uh, send me an email at dave at spicecatalyst.com. Uh, on my website, there are links to the, the books that you mentioned that I've written that are available on Amazon and links to descriptions of each of the courses uh, that I have
0: available. Awesome. Well, I'm, I really do appreciate the time you spent with us. Um, This has been another episode of Gaining the Technology Leadership Edge. We hope you've had a great time learning everything you need to know to stay ahead of the technology curve. Remember to be curious, be updated on all the latest trends, and show them who's the boss. Until next time, we'll be back with plenty more techie tips and tricks so you can stay on top of your game.